to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Last week, we began looking at the traditions of the church and saw that centuries ago, our fathers and mothers in the faith instituted the tradition of Advent. The weeks that are leading up to the feast of Christmas have become, over time, a season in which we quiet ourselves and begin to open our hearts to the Lord in a deepened manner. We do the same during the season leading up to the Feast of Easter, which would be Lent. It's a time to reflect on the condition of our souls. Dana, welcome home. Welcome. How how was the first go-round? Was it good? Well, good. Dana's back from college. It's a time for us to reflect on the condition of our souls, a time for us to reflect on the things that motivate us. What is the state? What is the condition of our being? So... Part of that reflection is a considered self-examination of the internal beliefs, the internal motivations that are inside of us. We looked at this last week and we realized that during this time, we look at things that are different than what we state we believe. Because there is a gap between what we say we believe, what our mind says we believe, and that internal, deep, visceral part of us that is our core belief. The former, we aspire to believe but it is the latter that controls us. Now, we looked last week at lesser saviors who have taken up residence, whom we would look to for salvation. We saw that work ethic is one of those. If I just work hard enough or if I work smart enough, then I'll be saved from want. I'll be saved from need. We looked at relationships, marriage in particular. If I marry right, Or if I get my spouse to shape up, then I'll be saved from loneliness or I'll be saved from unhappiness. We looked at money. Money, we uh, recognize that if I can just catch up, if I can just get out of debt, then I'll be saved from distress or saved from worry. Approval. If I treat people well, then they'll like me. And if they like me, then I'll be validated. And if I'm validated, I will be saved from the distress that goes with feeling insignificant or being alone or being lonely. If I can just beat this cancer, and if I'm saved and my health is restored, then I can begin to live again. And we saw that these lesser saviors have a built-in flaw. We saw that they have at their foundation, at their core, a proposition that says, if then, if this can happen, then I will have this. And what happens is in that foundational supposition, we find that far from being saviors, they become for us taskmasters. Now, as people of faith, we said, reality demands that God be first in our lives. From the very beginning, God has made it clear that we are to have no other gods before Him. We saw last week that the confluence of God's truth and God's love demand that He lead us consistently and steadfastly away from lesser gods, lesser truths. 
When we allow God to do this, when lesser gods are laid aside and we make him first, all the things that were once idols in our hearts find their proper place in the scheme of things. The valid things, the important things that we have elevated beyond where they should be elevated, take their proper place. We are served by these things rather than us serving them. Instead of us serving the master and savior of work or of relationships or of money or of health, instead of us serving that, it now becomes a servant to us. And when we have done these things and put them in their proper place, we begin to realize the, the kingdom life for which God intended us. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God. And when you have done that, all these other things, things that your father knows you have need of, things that are good, work, health, money, friends, family, significance, when you have sought first the kingdom of God, then you will find that these will be added unto you, but in their proper place. When God is first, things will be added unto you, but not as a savior, not as a truth, not something that will devolve into a taskmaster in your life. So we saw God at life's center aligns the rest of life properly. However, that's easy to say, not so easy to do with the vestiges of fallenness still clinging to parts of our soul, though we have been redeemed by our Savior God. It is still prevalent in the human experience to find God being yanked out of the center. It's not easy to keep him there. We are so easily deceived. All it takes is a strong emotional feeling and we are yanked away from God being at the center. All it takes is the smoke and mirrors of circumstances to cloud our perceptions so that we look and we see something. We interpret it away and we are yanked out of God being at the center and we find ourselves deviating from life with God at the center and being sucked into a trap state where we are serving false gods and we are believing false truths. So. That being the case for human beings, our ancestors in the faith set aside a couple of times of year for us to collectively begin to reflect upon where we are, to examine ourselves and to see where we've been hoodwinked, to see where it is that stuff or things or circumstances have become false saviors for us and to see where cherished but false beliefs have come to dominate our interior world. Now, let us be clear, what God has created is good. Marriage is good. Work is good. Possessions are good. Affections and friendship, enjoyment, pleasure, all of these things are good. But the fall has introduced complications into the system of human life. The fall ejected God from his central place within our souls. He's taken a place of lesser honor consequent to the fall. Things have been given a place of honor they do not deserve. Stuff, beliefs, these exact tribute from us of which they are not worthy. Things and stuff have become to us overlords 
have become to us tyrants. And to be free of the tyranny of these false beliefs in which we depend, these false saviors to which we look for our redemption and rescue, to be free from these things, to draw any benefit from this season of reflection that is Advent, to even be able to see what our false beliefs are, to even be able to understand what false saviors we look to for deliverance, the ancient authentic faith, has required of us, encouraged us to take a simple, fundamental posture toward God. For it's not easy to see those things that have deceived us. Deception, by its nature, is deceptive. And we are not always aware of where we have been deceived. So to draw the advantage of this season of reflection, those who have gone before us encourage us to this simple posture before God. We pray it every Sunday at service end. Lord, we bring to you the offering of a surrendered heart. Lord, we lay ourselves before you. You are God. We are not. You are the almighty creator. We are the created. It is you who has made us and it is not we ourselves. It is this posture of surrender that gives us access to the blessing of the season of reflection to which we are encouraged during Advent. Surrender. Now, Abraham was old when Isaac was born. He was old enough to be his grandfather, old enough to appreciate the great gift that had been given to him, old enough for this delight, this pleasure, this great gift to have taken a place of extraordinary value within his heart. If we were to put ourselves in Abraham's position, it's easy to see how Isaac could have become for us a lesser savior. Because I am sure that Isaac saved Abraham from disappointment. I am sure that Isaac saved Abraham from loneliness. I am sure that Isaac saved Abraham from insignificance, from hopelessness. It's easy to see how this baby that came to an old man could have represented Something even bigger than it was. As it was, he represented everything sacred, everything of God's promise to him, the fulfillment of covenant, the line of the Messiah given him by God, promised to him and then fulfilled. It's easy to see. It's easy to see also how the heart of this old man could have become so deeply and closely knit to this child I have friends who've had children later in life. They had, you know, a batch earlier and then, oh, look what happened. There's another one. (laughs) And almost universally, I've heard them say, we are better parents now than we were when we were 20. We're better at 50 than we were at 20. Age has brought us to the place where we see with a different perspective. We see from a larger vantage point. And I can imagine Abraham more capacitated to love Isaac than he had been when he was young. Of course, it's this way. Isaac was the fulfillment of promise. God had made promises to Abraham and Isaac represented those promises being fulfilled. God had given and he had promised and he had come through. And it's completely normal for a father to love his son more deeply than is imaginable. 
But even in the fulfillment of God's promise, even in the delightful, even divinely given love of a father for a son, a child can become a lesser savior and subsequently can become a harsh taskmaster. If God does not have center place in our lives, we are left with nothing else but taskmasters. And so, Abraham, take your son, the one that you love, and travel to the region of Moriah. And there, I want you to take a knife and I want you to plunge it into his heart. And then I want you to burn his body in sacrifice to me. I can't even imagine that. I cannot imagine taking Michael, plunging a knife into his heart, and burning his body in sacrifice to God. I can't imagine the pain that Abraham went through. I can't imagine the internal turmoil, the wrestling match between the old man and his God. I can't even imagine the agony of that night. The story doesn't tell us much of the details. But I can imagine it. I can imagine how difficult that was for him. I can imagine the words that Abraham was having with God. I can imagine that there was pleading. I can imagine that there was anger. I can imagine that there was deal making. I'll do this, God. Take my life. Don't take his. I'm an old man. I have walked with you. It's no great ordeal for me to die. But this boy, God, this boy is your promise. You are the one who gave him to me. You are the one who put this love in my heart. How can you ask this of me? I can imagine what went on that night. How can you ask me to kill this boy, the love for whom is so deep in my heart? How can you ask me to do that? How can I give myself to even do this deed, even contemplate this deed? Not just for my own sake, God. But it's your promise. You were the one. What a hellish fire he had to walk through that night. I can imagine the hell. But after that wrestling match, Abraham came to a place of complete and total surrender to his God. He rose in the morning and he set off to obey his God. It is at the same time both a horrible act and a beautiful act. Horrible in even contemplating so heinous a deed. Beautiful only in hindsight. Beautiful only as we look back. Beautiful in the sense of seeing a man who comes to his God willing to make a sacrifice that is ultimate more deeply than giving his own life. The ultimate statement of surrender to his God. Now, as I was preparing for this morning, of course, I had to reflect on that great struggle of surrender and I had to ask if I could have done it. And having thought about that, I had to come to the place of saying to the Lord, Lord, you're going to have to help me. I'm pretty convinced that the only way that Abraham could come to bring himself to do this was because 
he knew God well enough and trusted him deeply enough. And I had to pray, Lord, may I know you well enough. May I trust you deeply enough that I, too, would obey. I imagine the balance was tipped that night in that wrestling time with God when Abraham thought about the heart of God. I don't understand how he can ask me to do this thing, but I know he is good. I know it. I know it's true. I've seen him. I've walked with him these years, and I know he is good. I cannot understand how it is he's asking this of me. And then the New Testament gives us an inkling of what he might have been thinking. Ah, this is what's going to happen. Because I know he's good. And yet he's asked me to do this thing. He's going to resurrect Isaac. That's what's going to happen. I will kill him, but God will bring him to life again. That has to be the only thing that gave him the strength to get up in the morning and to walk himself up that mountain and to prepare himself for so heinous a deed. I know he's good. I know he is good. And God allowed Abraham to suffer right up to the point of no return. Only when he came to the moment where there was no retreat did God forbid him to harm the child. Only at that point where the altar had been set, the sticks had been arranged, the boy had been tied up, the knife was brought back, ready to plunge only at that moment when the crucible of circumstances had gone so deeply in the breaking of Abraham's heart. Only when the suffering had broken through the power of a love that had been polluted by an improper place, only as God's love and God's truth had done a deep purging work, a deep purifying work inside of Abraham, only then did God Release Abraham from this commitment. Go home to your tent, Abraham, the text says. Love your son. I know that you fear me. I know that you have put me first in your life. Abraham is often referred to as Father Abraham for people of faith. Because we recognize that he was a seminal character in the walk of faith. We are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. We are grafted in as believers. Those of us who walk in the Hebrew tradition are biological sons. But all of us are faith sons of Abraham. Because it was in him and through him that God started the building of his kingdom. And at that point, when the genetic DNA of this work of God was being fashioned, being formed, at that foundational time of the great work upon which God was going to build solidly for all time, at that time, God established this truth irrevocably. All who come after you, Abraham, will know this truth. All who rise from your loins will know this to be true, that I must be first, for only I am true. I must be first, for only I am real. But because you have done this thing, 
because you have brought yourself to total surrender. You are able to receive a blessing that I have had in mind. And I will bless you, Abraham. I will bless you in multiplying. As the stars of the heavens, as the sands of the seashore, your seed shall be. And each one of them will walk out with a mission of blessing this earth and fulfilling my purposes of goodness on the planet. And it will be founded on this foundational truth, this foundational reality that all must center on me, that I must be the very center. And on that truth, I will build my kingdom. It doesn't work any other way. You cannot be on the center and have this work. My truth compels me to lead you to that reality. Abraham became a man that day, wholly surrendered to God. A man completely and utterly obedient to him. A man like all of us who had allowed a false savior to hold sway was cleansed that day was purified that day. Now I have to tell you, I think God was cruel. I don't like the way God did it. I wouldn't have done it that way. If God was to ask my opinion, I would have said, we can do this another way. Let's have Abraham read a book. (laughs) Let's have him write an essay. (laughs) There would have been something else I would have done. God's ways seemed cruel, but they were effective. They worked. Abraham was a man who was free, a man whose life was centered on truth, a man who was living in reality. Because after that day, Abraham possessed nothing. After that day, Abraham possessed nothing. Now, this is hard to say because Scripture makes it clear he was a rich man. He had all the camels, all the sheep, all the servants, all the trappings that you could ever want. Everything that in our society would translate into being a wealthy man, he was wealthy. He had a wife. He had friends. He had the son that he loved. He had prestige in the community. He had political power. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. Our ancient forebears in the faith used a term to describe this state of being. It was the term renunciation. The word me And the word mine ceased to have the same power in his life. Abraham had given everything that he possessed to his God. All that I am, all that I have, I lay before you, Lord, it is yours. Everything that I possess, I have now surrendered to you. All the stuff of life. All the saviors that are so commonly looked to, all the beliefs that are so commonly held, all those things left the center of Abraham's heart. They became external realities, not internal gods. They were no saviors to him. They were no values to be clung to at all cost. They became what they truly are. They became trifles, insignificant little nothings. I'm sure that they brought him pleasure. Trifles do bring us pleasure. I'm sure that he took great delight 
in his son, in his wife. I'm sure that he took great delight in his wealth and riches. I'm sure that it was desirable to him to stand and exercise power in the region that he did. I'm sure that pleasure accrued to him from the stuff and the circumstances of his life. But they were no more to him than they were. They were no more to him than they were. They had proper place in his heart. Now, it's common for us to fear giving God our treasures. It's common for us to fear laying over to God our possessions, our power, our relationships, those things that are precious to us, those things that we treasure. It's common to be afraid of doing that. It's common for us to fear giving up our time, giving up our energy, giving up our focus and giving it to God and saying your way, not mine. It is common for us to be afraid of that. We are afraid often to spend our lives on his kingdom instead of our own. Because what would we be left with? And after all, look at him. What kind of God makes a man wait for 90 years to have a child And then tells him to go stab that child in the heart and burn his body. What kind of God does that? What kind of God withholds the things that I so clearly need and I've let him know that I need? What kind of God keeps silent when I need answers? What kind of God is so cryptic and seemingly unreasonable? What kind of God would do this? There's good reason for us to be afraid of giving ourselves completely and totally to him. No, thank you. I will just hold on to my treasure. Thank you very much. I'll just hold on to my people, hold on to my beliefs, hold on to my saviors. They may not be as big as you are, as powerful as you are, but they're a heck of a lot safer and they're certainly more predictable. But it's the fallen mind that thinks this way. It's a limited view of reality that holds these thoughts. It's a flawed view of truth that sees us because our God does not come to us to destroy. Our God does not come to us to steal, to kill, to damage us. Our God has made it very clear that He comes to give us life. Life eternal. Life everlasting. Life, John tells us, abundant A life that is free of lesser gods. A life that is not dominated by lesser truths or harsh taskmasters. Now, it is true, and I will be the first to tell you from personal experience, that the medicine is often exceedingly painful. And it is true that his ways are not our ways. And it is true that he asks us from time to time to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And there can be no more poetic an image for what it feels like to walk through the crucible, the difficulties, the harshness of this life that is burning from within us those things that are dross. He doesn't do things the way that I would do them. But let's reconsider a truth that we reference frequently here at our church. And that is this. There's not a thing in the world that you own that wasn't given you by God. There isn't a breath that you take that wasn't God's to give. There isn't a heartbeat that pumps blood through your being that isn't of God's pleasure. 
There's not an energy unit that you expend. There is not a talent that you possess. There's not a distinguishing characteristic about you at all that was not given you by God. The work ethic that we so much count on, gift of God. The health that we appeal to as our salvation, gift of God. The people, the affection, everything we possess is given us from God. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 4 says. Don't take pride over one another. Who makes you any different than anyone else? What do you have that distinguishes you that wasn't a gift that you received? Everything was a gift to you. Why in the world would you boast? God merits our surrender because he is God. By definition, the reality is he has made us. We have not made ourselves. And in that context, he merits surrender. If God was mean and nasty, he would merit surrender. If God was harsh and demanding, he would merit our surrender. If God was cruel and thoughtless, he would merit surrender. If he was a selfish tyrant, he would merit surrender just by nature of him being God. We did not create ourselves, but he is not those things. The heart of our God is one of love. And when he walks us through the valley of the shadow of death, it is born of a heart of love because he sees what we do not see. When he takes us through the fire that would burn out those things that would keep us from him, it is born of a heart of love. In the first service, I shared again a story of my son because there were people there who haven't heard the story. Some of you have. When uh, when my son, who is very active and strong-willed, was, I think, seven, eight, nine, something like that, his mother told him to do something he didn't want to do, he promptly walked out to the front yard and threw a baseball through the window, or the backyard. <laughs> and then Dad came home. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to deal with this, my son. Now, we've been doing some work, and I just had a dump truck drop 11 tons of crush and run uh, on our driveway. And it occurred to me... It would be more convenient for me if that pile was there. <laughs> so I said to my son at seven or eight years old, here's a shovel and there's crush and run and it's been rained on. And you know what happens to crush and run after it gets rained on? It gets packed down. They have to chip it out. I want you to take a shovel of this. Then I want you to walk about 10 yards over there and I want you to dump that shovel out. And I want you to keep going until that pile is gone. And I want that pile to be here. And so he would cry and he would moan and he would groan and he would say, oh, mom, I need a sandwich. That's what I need. I need a sandwich, mom. <laughs> mom, mom, I need a glass of water. Mom's going crazy. She says, you know, did you penalize him or did you penalize me? <laughs> and I said, all right, so we locked the doors. <laughs> now you can't come in. We will bring you water when it's time for you to drink. We will bring you food when it is time for you to eat. So move the things. Now, my son was persuaded that I was cruel and heartless. And yet, I will tell you this about my son now. His strong will has become surrendered. He is still full of it. Man, I tell you, he's got, he's got plans to shave his head and put a tattoo on top of his head. I mean, he's just, <laughs> he, is, he is, goes to the edge, but there is something inside of him that is broken that says, I will yield. 
I will lay down my life. And I want that for him when he marries, that he would be yielded to his wife. I want that in his relationship with God, that he would be yielded to his Lord. I want that in his work life, that he would be yielded those times when he has an employer, that that would be his heart, because I know that that will lead him into a life that will fulfill him. And I would take him out to the valley of the shadow of Crush and Run because I love him and because I want for him what would be blessed in his life. Now, I can figure that out as an earthly father. Sinful, flawed. I made so many mistakes as a parent. And if I can figure that out as an earthly father, I'm relatively certain that God can figure this out as a divine, holy father. That though his ways would not be my ways, and would seem far, far too harsh, far too difficult for us to walk through. That they would be rooted in a heart that says, I want you to be free. I don't want you laboring under the taskmaster that will destroy you. I want you free. It is always in your best interests to obey God. Even when he's in the process of killing something off that you cherish deeply. Even when he is so much not like you, you can trust your God. Even if you can't believe how incredibly harsh the path that he has asked you to walk is, you can always, always count on the reality that God has your best interests at heart. There is no way for human beings to know what it what beliefs, what lesser beliefs are dominating their interior world. There's no way for human beings to know what lesser saviors we are looking to for salvation because we are deceived and the nature of deception is that it is deceiving. We can't know what is going on inside of us. We can't know how it is that we will be delivered from deception. We can't know what kind of medicine it will take for us to finally find our way to freedom. But our God knows And if you will surrender to him, he is faithful and he is just and he will deliver you from all unrighteous deception, all unrighteous illusion and all sin. So this Advent season, I encourage you to some moments of reflection. If you didn't quiet yourself last week, fortunately, you didn't die last week. You get another chance. You can quiet yourself this week. If you didn't use the diagnostic tool that I talked about last time, and I'm not laboring under the illusion that we all did, (laughs) most of us probably went Christmas shopping. But if you didn't ask yourself the question, Lord, when will life get good for me? Lord, when will these things unfold? What is it that I'm looking to to make me happy? If you didn't use that diagnostic tool I talked about last week, fortunately this week gives you another chance. And if you do, And God reveals something cherished, something precious. And if God asks you to walk away from it, remember, it is always in your best interests to obey God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us to surrender. That you would strengthen us to obedience. That you would strengthen us to lay down trifles that we would know truth. And Lord, here is this simple thing, quieting ourselves, listening to you. And Lord, we're just not very good at it. 
we so easily get distracted, we should be doing better. Lord, we should be better at listening. We should be better at quieting ourselves. We should be better at seeking after you and your kingdom and your ways. We should just be a whole bunch better, Lord, but we're not. And so we come to you and say, help us, God. Help us even do so simple a thing as quieting ourselves and asking you what false beliefs are motivating us. Lord, help us. I pray that you would strengthen us to employ a simple diagnostic tool, strengthen us to set aside the time. And Lord, may we come to the place that Abraham came to where our souls are founded on truth and our souls are founded on reality and we are free indeed. I pray that blessing upon this congregation, Lord. The blessing of being free. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please prepare your tithes and offerings.